most original and creative talent in our business, would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Buck Benny, the two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. All right. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. I am joined today by Kathy fuller Seely. Hey, Kathy, how's it going? Great. Uh, although uh, it's getting ready for school time. So it's going, ah, ah. I know, I know. Same for me. Same for me. This is my, uh, this next week is going to be my first real big week back. Um and we, of course, have Vincent Longo. Vincent, how you doing? Great. Good to be here. Now, you do you start up school stuff and things as well, or, or with with the work you do? And when is that? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So this starts uh, August thirtieth. Uh, I'm not teaching this next semester. I'm a uh, fellow in the uh, the University of Michigan Clemens Library, which is their um, library for early American history. Uh, like the origins of America and stuff like that. I know nothing about that. Uh, certainly not my <laughs> subject area, but I was brought in to, uh, to uh, build up their archival outreach and education programs. One of my main things is I teach uh, undergraduate students, community college students, high school students, how to use archival materials, uh, how to think about them in relationship to what they learn in like history classes and things like that. So that's what I'll be doing and wrapping up the dissertation. So uh not teaching a class, but teaching uh, archival stuff. Well, I, I'd like to I'd like to to be a fly on the wall watching you talk to a student. Uh, my teacher says I need to find out about the Civil War and, and more information about that. Yes, that's really interesting. But let's talk about Orson Welles for a few minutes. And <laughs> I, I warned them that was going to happen when they hired me, and they said, "Yeah, no, it's all right, it's fine." I'm like, "Okay, well." Here are Orson's thoughts on the Civil War for you (laughs) to share with your teacher. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Don't tell my boss. I might not get hired uh, after all. (laughs) And we have Terry Phillips with us, too. Terry, how are you doing? Good morning, Daryl. I'm well, thanks. Good. Good, good, good. And uh, uh, where are we at with uh, your next episode or or how far along? I'm uh, approaching the halfway mark on part one of the final episode of the season. It's definitely looking like a two-parter. Okay. And uh, I keep getting dragged away by the events of the day. You know, these plays are supposed to have some connection to uh, current events, and yeah. current events keep changing. And so, yeah, <laughs> like, for sure. you know, sure, adjusting yeah. a little bit to keep up. Yeah. yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there. Well, good. Well, good. Well, we are here today to talk about uh, Orson Welles and his commentaries. And this commentary is from July 14th, 1946. Uh, it uh, covers uh, Hiroshima is, is a lot of it that he's going to talk about and things. It's a, a really interesting commentary. Uh, again, one of these where Orson kind of takes this in a new direction from where we've been going the last number of weeks. And uh, it's refreshing and, and certainly interesting, certainly a packed commentary, sometimes a little hard to follow where he's going with it as he loops around, but, uh, but highly interesting. Um, Vincent, what, what were your thoughts on it? And, and let's go from there. 
Yeah. So, I mean, just in general, I will say that in some ways it was, you know, another jam packed episode, but in, in some ways it was a little easier to follow in my mind because he talked about the same issue, basically only two issues, kind of three issues the whole time, where sometimes he's like this giant list of current events, which are not as related here. He keeps sort of like on the same, wouldn't say on the same rhetorical bend, but it goes from Hiroshima to the bomb to religion and then it sort of, you know, sort of manifests in that. So I found it uh, fairly followable. We'll dig in deep and complicate it a little bit. But um, uh, one interesting thing that's happening in the background um, of this, uh, I think I mentioned last time that if Wells doesn't know around the world is ending, he, he at least sees it on the, you know, in his future. Um, he's working on other projects. I mentioned the other films, the adaptation of Around the World. But just a little characterization of Wells uh, that I thought was really interesting is uh, around the world's been on Broadway for almost two months now. So you would think it's really reached this sort of normalization, this sort of standard mode of practice. But the New York Times uh, published an article I'd never seen before on it this week. Actually, it was published a day after this. And they described the backstage of Around the World. And uh, it, it was utter chaos. I'll give you a couple quotes that I thought were uh, very interesting. To, for a production that should be running like a well-oiled machine, they described it as, quote, Kane, as in Citizen Kane, Kane's warehouse brought to life by a madman who added a circus and a barnyard. That was one thing they said. A later quote was, uh, the backstage was born of Salvador Dali and a Mac Senate merger. Um, <laughs> Um, I thought that that was uh, really beautifully done. I mean, it's a very long article. It's nearly uh, a page long. Um, And they go into vivid detail about how things still are running like chaos, you know, not as bad as at the beginning of around the world when things were, you know, stage crew, stage hands were ending up on the stage in the show, you know, but not far from it. So, you know, Wells, as he's trying to balance all this stuff, he just sort of likes to gloss things over, you know, and like, Things might be chaos, but he's got to focus on other things. So I thought that was really telling. So I'll start there and, uh, you know, we can move on. But, um, you know, that's sort of how Wells works. And it was a good encapsulation of that. (laughs) That's great. Wow. Well, Kathy, what did you think of this episode? Well, as I said, I, I only heard it for the first time this morning, but I'm still... It's still very much in my mind. Um, And as uh, 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 many of us here are teachers, I mean, uh, right now I'm thinking about we're teaching in pandemic times. And I don't know if in a couple of weeks I'm going to be able to go in the classroom or if, again, uh, uh, this this horrible pandemic is going to come and sort of upend my plans. And so I feel a little bit like that teacher uh, standing, you know, in the midst of the rubble. Um, and I'm, I'm praying that I will have my dozen little scholars uh, who actually want to be there and learn. Can we actually pull this off in those, in those tough times? I was really struck that this episode really takes us all around the world, whereas many, t- many of his other episodes are focused on things happening in America to the people or his anger at what's happening uh, in, uh, in Congress or things like that. Oh, and yet um, uh, the shadow of America is everywhere because who created Hiroshima? But, you know, uh, the American atomic bomb. And then he comes back to just vaguely mentioning um, now America is going to become that empire that was the British one that had uh, fallen apart. 
So as I said, I was incredibly struck by the the poetry, the sadness, and then how wonderfully, I guess maybe this is a very sort of Christian kind of thing uh, that at the end he comes back to the hopefulness of renewal of the scholars, of the little children wanting to be there and learning. And it just so happens that of the book I've mentioned several times, I actually had the, co the copy turned up to be in my home library and not at my packed up library at school. That um, uh, for readers out there who want to learn more about the American response uh, 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 coming to grips with Atomic Times, uh, Paul Boyer's By the Bombs Early Lay. I know we're not visual, but I'm going to shake it in front of our non-existent <laughs> screen. <laughs> Paul Boyer By the Bombs Early Lay. Seeing the scene there. Hope she mentions the title. I'm going to see what she's holding yeah, up. Yeah. No, but he's gone. He's a wonderful historian. He's no longer with us. But he didn't know about the Orson um, broadcasts. I think, uh, you know, that's so Paul, uh, I hope they're talking up in the... Uh, 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 up in the uh, uh, upper regions yes. now about uh, this time period. So. Yeah. Well, it's so funny because it struck me the same thing as as, uh, as I'm thinking about going back and, and how to have my sixth graders come in and um, kind of usually we have this giant orientation thing that we do with, with all of them in a big group. And it's like, okay, well, you can't really do that. I've got to figure out how to make that more manageable. And, you know, was kind of like bemoaning myself of, oh, my gosh, I have to figure this out. And, oh, it's what? and then I then seeing these people teaching in Hiroshima after it's blown up. I mean, it's like, OK, well, maybe my issues aren't quite as big as I thought they were. So <laughs> it kind of puts things in perspective. Uh, Terry, what are your thoughts on it on this episode? Well, I was also kind of blown away by this commentary on uh, an awful lot of ground covered and uh, Wells in his, uh, um, at, at his poetical, lyrical best. Uh, you almost need a, a copy of the script to follow it all. And I didn't uh, have one in front of me, but uh, a couple of things to, uh, to add some perspective to our conversation here. First of all, this is um, a little more than 12 months uh, sorry, a little more than 11 months after the dropping of the bomb uh, uh, on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, and yesterday, as we're recording this on August 7th, right. <coughs> excuse me, yesterday was the anniversary of the, the uh, dropping of the bomb on uh, Hiroshima in 1945, August 6th, 1945. Um, this this uh, commentary was recorded and or at least broadcast on uh, July the 14th of 1946. <coughs> Excuse me. And <laughs> coincidentally, this was the very day that Benjamin Spock's famous book on uh, baby care was published. Oh, and Benjamin Spock became one of the most prominent uh, anti-war advocates of his generation. So I think while it certainly wasn't, um, you know, deliberate on anybody's part, I think it's an interesting connection between Wells' current uh, moment as he wrote these commentaries and what was to become part of our current uh, um, era. Uh, he mentions um, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and I had to go back and read that Oak Ridge was the location of one of the three uh, centers where um, components of the uh, atomic bomb uh, were developed. I think that's where the uranium was uh, extracted for the very bomb that was dropped on uh, on Hiroshima. And then he transitions uh, 
to a couple of other places on the globe, uh, Poland and, and even Athens, Greece, where my uh, uh, ancestors came from, and talked about uh, anti-Semitism and, and you know, the ravages of war and post-war. And then he, uh, he also mentions um, the, quote, socialist uh, government of, of Great Britain, which in 1946 was led by Clement Attlee, who was, uh, you know, the leader of the Labor Party, but was a self-described socialist in 1946. Uh, in 1946, the term socialism meant something quite different than it is than the way it's used today. But uh, it gave me uh, a reason to go back and read about what the Brits were doing uh, in so developing social programs. And at that time, it was it was what we would call today a very very progressive party, not. Not the same comparison that Wells makes in this same commentary to the um, the horrors of uh, Stalin's uh, quote socialist programs or communist programs in the Soviet Union. And Kathy, I agree with you. It was very nice to hear, and and, and you too, Vincent. Nice to hear a a hopeful, positive end in this uh, commentary, ending with a question about um, whether the uh, Japanese student in that photograph that we've seen. Um, raising his hand, whether he would get an answer to to his questions about his future. And I suppose here we are um, uh, generations later, and we still don't know what the answer is to that question. We're still wondering whether the bomb will um, be our end someday. Right, right. Agreed. Yeah. Interesting, <laughs> interesting episode all the way around. One of the, yeah. one of the better ones. And yeah. uh, uh, just really had forgotten how good he can get. And this is really top notch. I, I love the tiny rustle of paper I heard as he changed pages. And, you know, because mm. we often um, uh, uh, think that he's um, almost, you know, literally stream of consciousness. And it was just uh, nice to hear that, that little rustle in the background that um, just showed all the effort that he put into uh, creating these things. Yeah, quite quite distinct from an earlier uh, commentary that uh, you and I talked about where it did sound more stream of consciousness or more mm, uh, right. spontaneous. In this case, clearly he was working with a very well-developed um, uh, text. Yeah. yeah, can I just say that I think, I mean, I, I did appreciate his hopeful message at the end, but I do think in some ways it undercuts the uh, boldness and aggression of his rhetoric earlier. I mean, mm. I think, it's the, the episode takes some interesting turns. I mean, at the beginning, he builds up some new rhetorical moves again, you know, against the bomb, essentially, like think of the children, essentially, if we want to think of that way. Um, you know, he, he brings up his own daughter, which would have uh, Rebecca, who would have been the same age. So there's this appeal. You know, how are you going to explain the bomb to them? Um, of course, then that becomes uh, an appeal to a traditional Christian audience where he says, like, there's probably nothing more unchristian than the bomb itself. Um, and he, you know, he brings up all this, all these stories of Jesus and things like that. But then he starts undercutting his argument in sort of a different way, which he says, you know, what's really not Christian, uh, how they're acting the church. In fact, the church, you know, uh, specifically the deal, the way they're dealing with, um, you know, racism against the Jews. And then he then compares the, ch uh, the organized church to communism uh, you know, as this sort of uh, cultish mindset that's out for power. And then he sort of then puts it in a nice little bow and says like, you know, yeah, I just sort of chastised you for saying 
Uh, that's not Christian. You shouldn't have done it. Look, think of the children, but they'll probably be okay. Like, you know, yeah, go ahead, Kathy. Yeah. Vincent, that is such a great point because, you know, apparently at this point, he doesn't know about uh, radioactivity and, you know, and, and continuing fallout. And, and um, in, uh, I wonder, do you know, Vincent, if later in his life, he became a more, appointedly sort of, you know, anti-bomb, anti-war of you can't let the U.S. off the hook for this. That Oh, it's okay. The little seeds will grow. And um, yeah, so. that's a great question. I'd have to I'd have to follow up. I'll, I'll do that in next episode. So we, we talked about I think it was last time about uh, what he his political motivations, his political ideas later. As I said, he became uh, increasingly I wouldn't say apolitical, but certainly not as motivated as he was now. And so I'd have to go back and look to see how he talks about war, how he talks about the Vietnam War in particular, which I think, you know, uh, he would be ripe with opinions about, although I can't I can't remember uh, too much about him talking about it. So I'll follow up with that. Um, I think we'd all be interested to learn more. Well, not to add a huge downer to this or anything, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just immediately am thinking how many of those kids are still around or or how many of them got cancer at some point because of the fallout and that sort of thing. I mean, uh, I would assume it was not a great place to be at that time uh, for lots of reasons. And uh, yeah. uh, who, who knows what happened there. Now, I do know as we were all searching for the photos, because um, he's talking about a photo, so of course all four of us were <laughs> frantically going over the internet trying to find copies of anything. There was a, there was a lot, there's a lot of photos of students in classes outside where with, with a bombed out uh, area of, of Japan. And, and uh, the uh, ones that I was reading on some of them, they were talking about how this, oh, there's this person's in the picture and this person in the picture who went on to do this thing and that thing. So it sounded like a lot of them did go on and, and, and survived yeah. and that's wonderful. Um, but Daryl, you bring up the point that every, no picture is innocent. And who took this picture? Was it a U.S. photographer trying to convince people back? Oh, no, don't be guilty. Look, the little sprouts are coming up. It's going to be fine. You know, yeah. so um, er every picture tells a number of stories and is, is creative for certain reasons. So, um. yeah, exactly. One question I have um, at the very end of this broadcast, we've talked about how, you know, some ABC stations across the country did not play or seemed to, uh, seemed to believe they did not play Wells' uh, broadcast. At the end, I noticed something that I had not heard before, which was the ABC announcer uh, specifically saying that next week Orson Wells will be covered on, quote, most ABC networks. Has he said that before? Uh, I usually thought he just said, well, Orson Wells will return next week on ABC, and I've never noticed him say specifically most. I wanted to see if anybody had noticed that. No, what, what's interesting is by the end, the the end of the the run he'll come on and say by a couple of abc uh stations instead of no, no, no. <laughs> one abc station. one yeah. instead of two so, so, a few and then a few less <laughs> a couple <laughs> we hope you're enjoying this on the one abc station that's playing in the united states <laughs> We hope Orson's neighbors hear him. Uh, he's not on our stations anymore. <laughs> but yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't that surprise me at all if if because it, he's an equal opportunity uh, offender of 
folks. And so I can see him slowly, his, oh. his audience and, and the amount of stations that are willing to play him slowly drop and drop and drop over time. I'll, I'll do some more searching, but you know, I found that one example in Cleveland where the station decided to drop the show and then supposedly hundreds of listeners were writing in saying, please don't take Orson off the air. So, um, I, but it's just happenstance. What can I find on newspapers.com? So, right. Or one listener writing in hundreds of times with lots of different <laughs> pseudonyms. Well, <laughs> you never know. His, thir- his third grader. I want to hear my dad. So, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> anyway, uh, anything else on this episode? Are we good? All right. So we will we'll let this one go and enjoy it. Uh, wonderful high. The sound quality is really good in this one throughout. And uh, and like I say, Orson is so wonderful in this episode. His presentation is just great. So you'll really you're really in for a treat today. And we'll see you folks next time. This is Orson Welles speaking. You know, if television ever shoves plain radio out of business, I don't know what'll happen to us commentators. You may be willing to let one man talk at you for 15 minutes, but you won't be able to stand looking at him for the same length of time. So I guess broadcasts like these will be illustrated. Your video screen will be treated to a series of news, photos, maps, charts, explanatory animation, and so forth. Well, if the forward march of technological progress had turned your obedient servant into a land and slide lecture as early as this week. My visual text for this little Sabbath talk would be a certain news photo. I saw it a few days ago in a weekly magazine. It's a snapshot of the remnants of a Japanese city called Hiroshima. As photography, the picture's none too good. As commentary, the picture's more eloquently meaningful than any words, explanatory or editorial, I'll manage to put together about it this morning. As a news photo, it's specially weak because it needs a second glance. A fast first look tells you that here's another panorama of the sterile garbage of the bomb. The same blank rubble and wreckage, the familiar tableau of ashes. You read the title, School at Hiroshima. You settle your eyes again on the picture above, and there it is, sure enough, out of the broken bones of a city blossoming through its very ribs is a tiny congregation of tiny children. A round-faced round dozen of Japanese citizens-to-be, or citizens that might be. There they sit at their little desks, straight-backed, solemn, attending whatever it is their teacher, a young man in a farmer-style straw hat, a stooped and sorry-looking pedagogue, may be finding appropriate to say to them. What can he be saying to them? What in the world? What in that world, anyway? What wisdom, cherished in that bleak and baking chaos, and the schoolmaster in the straw hat be teaching the 12 little scholars of Hiroshima. The three R's, Japan's three R's, were reach, rule, and ruin. But even a schoolteacher could not sermonize there, not there, in the trash heap. Even that creature called Allied Spokesman would find it an uneasy task to stand before the 12 little scholars, the scholars of Hiroshima, and tell them they brought it on themselves. Two and two make four, oh yes, and energy is equal to mc squared, Einstein's equation for the conversion of mass into energy. Energy is equal to mass m multiplied by the velocity of light c squared. As always, the alphabet, of course, a is for atom, b is for bomb, or the equivalent ideographs. Whatever the lesson, the scholars seem to be accepting it with at least a formal attentiveness, and one of them has his hand up. He seems to think he knows the answer. It's conceivable that he does. Or there's the likelihood that he's merely making the classic request. If he's asking, teacher, please, can he leave the room? The tragic joke of it is that there isn't any room to leave. 
This study hall is a hasty patch earnestly cleared out of the wilderness, the man-made wasteland. The little scholars of Hiroshima look to be about my daughter's age, so the class convening in the classroom would be Hiroshima's approximation of Santa Monica's third grade. This, then, is an introductory course of preparation for the studies commenced at Thebes, continued in the libraries of Alexandria and Rome, perhaps concluded in the laboratories at Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Between the forging of metal and the splitting of the atom, between the wheel and the bomb is a treasury of thinking and discovery. Live and read a thousand years without recess. The little scholars will never learn it all. But they know as well as any graybeard, better than most, the ultimate idiocy achieved by that experiment which began in the chill of the cave where the first fire was tamed. They have seen the fire tame the fire makers. Having been shown in a moment of time the end of time, the little scholars of Hiroshima bring to their studies certain apprehensions of the apocalypse. A thunderbolt dreadfully announced to those little ears the news that the search for truth may end in the ionosphere, higher than man will ever fly, deeper than ever plummet sounds, the plummet itself radar controlled and sounding, if you'll forgive the pun, the very crack of doom. The little scholars who are as young as my oldest daughter confront their primary education with a queer and particular sophistication. They know how the mystery ends. They've read the last chapter. By lightning ten times brighter than the day, they have been shown the blackness of the period which marks the end of the last paragraph, the full stop, which is endless night. It's a hope for the world to hang on to that seated their dozen desks with nothing between their young heads and the dangerous sky. The little scholars will arrive at certain conclusions useful to the problem presently confronting all of us on all the blackboards of the earth. Children may solve that problem, for the problem may be simple. It certainly can be stated very simply. X equals survival. What is X? Once men made an X of wood. Some fearful priests, nameless in history and a servant of empire and a Pisa named Pilate, nailed a teacher to that wooden X, resolving the equation with the corpse of the Son of Man. For those calling themselves Christians, this forever solved the problem. X plus the martyred teacher was Christ on the cross. X equals salvation. I do not know whether the little scholars studying in a classroom founded on the scar of a city will reach the answer in the words of a teacher who told men to turn the other cheek. Conceivably, the span of the longest prophecy is past, and the time is upon us for new prophets. Conceivably, the old visions no longer illuminate. There was a man who searched his soul under a banyan tree. There was a man who found the devil in the desert, who named the one god Ahura Mazda. There was a man who prayed in a garden at Gethsemane. There was a man who brought the law down out of Sinai, who died on another mountain, straining his old eyes toward the promised land, the promised land he might not enter, flowing with milk and honey, the resting place his people never really reached. Conceivably, these men, all of them, are out of date. Conceivably, the present race of man is out of date. There were teachers whose conversations carefully pursued in the well-tempered groves of civilized antiquity defined the nature of man himself, drew up plans which are still available for a whole architecture of human living. Today, the crude riddle of hunger confounds the children of Greece. Empires contend in the streets of Athens, joining new ruins with the old. And we've listened without replying to the guns of civil war exclaiming among the crippled pillars of the Acropolis. In Rome were poets and lawmakers, were saints, 
and numberless executives of the Roman Church, here in the seat and seed place of empire. New and old empires today clash and scheme. Murder feeds the stones of Rome with fresh blood, spilt in causes which have lost all pattern or any purpose. A cardinal of the Roman Church, a priest, whose people dwell on another tragic battleground of freedom's fight, is staring straight into the face of an authentic devil today. The devil is called Pogrom. He is blind, with ravening teeth. The devil Pogrom is torture and shame. The devil Pogrom should be as unfamiliar by name as Beelzebub, but you'll see that name copied on the front pages of tomorrow's newspapers. The cardinal in Poland could exercise that demon or show his scarlet hat squarely in the ranks of those in Poland who are the fighting adversaries of race hate, but the cardinal disapproves of some of these and prefers not to be counted in their number. This week, Jews were clubbed and stoned, beaten, maimed, tortured. This little more than a year after Hitler's defeat. Forty-one Jews were murdered in Poland last week. And this the cardinal finds highly regrettable. But he says the Jews were not murdered because they were Jews. In a city called Kelsey, there's a street called Planty. And here a little boy led a mob last week to a building where he claimed to have seen the bodies of 15 Gentile children, victims of the Jews. Blood sacrifices of a secret Jewish ritual. Men and women and children who made their homes in that building, Jews to the number of 27, were turned out of those homes by the lynch mob and tortured until they died. Now, the myth of murdered Christian babies is one of the oldest lies in the whole history of hate. The little boy who repeated it admitted later that he'd been coached, carefully coached, by certain grown-ups. That even in the mania of the moment, he didn't believe it himself. But the cardinal doesn't believe that the Jews were murdered because they were Jews. The cardinal says the Jews themselves were mostly to blame for being murdered. It seems the cardinal doesn't want to move over to the place where the fight is being fought against race-baiting because some of the fighters are enemies of the church. The cardinal would have us think that the foe of a religion is worse than the foe of a race. That it is better to deny the brotherhood of man than to deny the motherhood of Rome. This is not a new heresy, but if any heresy ever uproots the church, it will be this heresy. If the grandeur and greatness, the good works, the accumulated wisdom of Rome are ever set at naught, it will be because ordained soldiers of the church militant have preferred preservation to peace. Because a sufficiency of priests, speaking under the banners of the Prince of Peace, place power before peace and put the politics of power before the all-absorbing business of goodwill toward men. There's another orthodoxy, a political orthodoxy, with missionaries and priests, with an immense flock of the faithful and its own kind of cardinals. Its Rome is in Moscow, its Mecca, its highest altar, a tomb in the Red Square. This is the political orthodoxy, centered in the Soviet Union and called communism. This orthodoxy, like all others, denies truth to every way but its own. Papal infallibility is no more inflexible than the bulls issued by the Politburo. There are heroes to substitute for saints, pamphlets to take the place of prayers. There are feast days and observances. There is everything but God. Those whose hope it is that Stalin's government in Russia will finally fail and fall believe that godlessness is the cue word for that destruction. For myself, I hold that if the triumphs of a terrible war and the peacetime victories of that government over ignorance and disease and savagery can never be said at naught, it will be for the same mistakes, the only mistakes which could ever destroy that other orthodoxy, the orthodoxy of religion. To put the machinations of power before the service of peace, this is the fatal disease which aggregations of great power 
our heir to. There was a scholar who studied in a public library in London, a German who found in England a formula and a vocabulary for the socialist ideal. In England now, there is a socialist government. But it's easy to guess what Karl Marx would have to say about the virulent aggressions in the near and far east of that capitalist empire, that socialist government, is vainly but with such ugly vehemence seeking to preserve. The partisans of England's socialist government will tell us there's no other cause of action possible. And the partisans and party members called communists will tell you that the ends justify the means. I wonder. In Paris, barricades are the symbol of the people's battle. They've been barricades in Paris, and there are no Frenchmen today too young to remember the last of them. But the pattern of a people's peace is still a crazy quilt, and high-hearted brothers in arms who knew where to go and where to fight the very day the Nazis thought they won have lost their way since the Nazis lost, and worse yet, they've lost the heart to find the way. To the rest of the Earth's inhabitants, we Americans who for a time seemed the well-armed champions of a free world look puffed with our own dollar greed and doomed to the confusions of raw empire. If this were television, I'd show you that picture again, the news photo of the classroom blossoming in the ruins. It's a tragic picture, you'll take my word for that, but you'd have to see it to see what I mean when I tell you that in some curious sense beyond the expression of words, it's a hopeful picture. It shows the stirring of life, exactly where life had no cause or call to stir again. It shows order when only anarchy could be expected to dwell. It shows children. And in this old world, this very old world, I don't know anything better to look at. The children are learning something. After the bomb, we might have thought there was nothing left to learn, or at least nothing worth learning. We might have thought there were no children with a heart to learn. We might have expected there'd be no children. But here they are in a news photo, straight and solemn behind their dozen tidy desks, alive and what's more industriously preparing to grow up in Hiroshima of all places, of all places in this ugly, drunken world. Now, this broadcast was not intended as a tribute to Japanese childhood, to the, but rather to the glorious mystery of renewal, the stubborn indestructibility of mankind. On the ticker tape in the newsroom this morning, I found no good omens. The word is bad amongst us and the sky black over our heads. There are no reasons in the headlines for anything but despair, but inside the newspaper are little signs and signals, little winks of encouragement. These are very slight, but so appears a beacon in a storm. If it's big enough to see, it's tremendous. Finally, I don't expect that our future is in the hands of a coming generation of Japanese. I offer no particular welcome to a messiah growing up in Hiroshima. He is hypothetical and worse unlikely, but one of the twelve little scholars has his hand raised. And if he's got an answer... We can use one. Now it's time to say goodbye. Thank you very much for letting me come to call. This time, please let me join you next week, same time. Till then, I remain, as always, obediently yours. We invite you to tune in again next week over most of these ABC stations for commentary by Orson Welles. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company.